B. Another paramount duty which the prevalence of sickness entails on you is that of living habitually ready to bear it patiently. Sickness is no doubt a trying thing to flesh and blood, to feel our nerves unstrung and our natural force abated, to be obliged to sit still and be cut off from all our usual avocations, to see our plans broken off and our purposes disappointed, to endure long hours and days and nights of weariness and pain. All this is a severe strain on poor sinful human nature. What wonder if peevishness and impatience are brought out by disease. Surely in such a dying world as this we should study patience. How shall we learn to bear sickness patiently when sickness comes to our turn? We must lay up stores of grace in the time of health. We must seek for the sanctifying influence of the Holy Ghost over our unruly tempers and dispositions. We must make a real business of our prayers and regularly ask for strength to endure God's will as well as to do it. Such strength is to be had for the asking. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it for you. John 14, verse 14. I cannot think it needless to dwell on this point. I believe the passive graces of Christianity to receive far less notice than they deserve. Meekness, gentleness, long-suffering, faith, patience are all mentioned in the Word of God as fruits of the Spirit. They are passive graces which specially glorify God. They often make men think who despise the active side of the Christian character. Never do these graces shine so brightly as they do in the sick room. They enable many a sick person to preach a silent sermon which those around him never forget. Would you adorn the doctrine you profess? Would you make your Christianity beautiful in the eyes of others? Then take the hint I give you this day. Lay up a store of patience against the time of illness. Then, though your sickness be not to death, it shall be for the glory of God. John 11.4 See, one more paramount duty which the prevalence of sickness entails on you is that of habitual readiness to feel with and help your fellow men. Sickness is never very far from us. Few are the families who have not some sick relative. Few are the parishes where you will not find someone ill. But wherever there is sickness, there is a call to duty. A little timely assistance in some cases, a kindly visit in others, a friendly inquiry, a mere expression of sympathy may do a vast good. These are the sort of things which soften asperities and bring men together and promote good feeling. These are ways by which you may ultimately lead men to Christ and save their souls. These are good works to which every professing Christian should be ready. In a world full of sickness and disease, 
We are to bear one another's burdens and be kind one to another. Galatians 6 verse 2, Ephesians 4:32. These things, I dare say, may appear to some little and trifling. They must needs be doing something great and grand and striking and heroic. I take leave to say that conscientious attention to these little acts of brotherly kindness is one of the clearest evidences of having the mind of Christ. They are acts in which our blessed Master Himself was abundant. He was ever going about doing good to the sick and sorrowful. Acts 10.38 They are acts to which He attaches great importance in that most solemn passage of Scripture, the description of the Last Judgment. He says there, I was sick, and ye visited me. Matthew 25:36. Have you any desire to prove the reality of your charity? That blessed grace which so many talk of and so few practice? If you have, beware of unfeeling selfishness and neglect of your sick brethren. Search them out. Assist them if they need aid. Show your sympathy with them. Try to lighten their burdens. Above all, strive to do good to their souls. It will do you good if it does no good to them. It will keep your heart from murmuring. It may prove a blessing to your own soul. I firmly believe that God is testing and proving us by every case of sickness within our reach. By permitting suffering, He tries whether Christians have any feeling. Beware, lest you be weighed in the balances and found wanting. If you can live in a sick and dying world and not feel for others, you have yet much to learn. I leave this branch of my subject here. I throw out the points I have named as suggestions, and I pray God that they may work in many minds. I repeat, That habitual preparedness to meet God, habitual readiness to suffer patiently, habitual willingness to sympathize heartily, are plain duties which sickness entails on all. They are duties within the reach of everyone. In naming them, I ask nothing extravagant or unreasonable. I bid no man retire into a monastery and Ignore the duties of his station. I only want men to realize that they live in a sick and dying world and to live accordingly. And I say boldly that the man who lives the life of faith and holiness and patience and charity is not only the most true Christian, but the most wise and reasonable man. And now I conclude all with four words of practical application. I want the subject of this paper to be turned to some spiritual use. My heart's desire and prayer to God in placing it in this volume is to do good to souls. One, in the first place, I offer a question to all who read this paper to which, as God's ambassador, I entreat their serious attention. 
It is a question which grows naturally out of the subject on which I have been writing. It is a question which concerns all of every rank and class and condition. I ask you, what will you do when you are ill? The time must come when you as well as others must go down the dark valley of the shadow of death. The hour must come when you, like all your forefathers, must sicken and die. The time may be near or far off, God only knows. But whenever the time may be, I ask again, what are you going to do? Where do you mean to turn for comfort? On what do you mean to rest your soul? On what do you mean to build your hope? From whence will you fetch your consolations? I do entreat you not to put these questions away. Suffer them to work on your conscience and rest not till you give them a satisfactory answer. Trifle not with that precious gift an immortal soul. Defer not the consideration of the matter to a more convenient season. Presume not on a deathbed repentance. The greatest business ought surely not to be left to the last. One dying thief was saved that men might not despair, but only one that none might presume. I repeat the question. I am sure it deserves an answer. What will you do when you are ill? If you were going to live forever in this world, I would not address you as I do. But it cannot be. There is no escaping the common lot of all mankind. Nobody can die in our stead. The day must come when we must each go to our long home. Against that day, I want you to be prepared. The body which now takes up so much of your attention, the body which you now clothe and feed and warm with so much care, that body must return again to the dust. Oh, think what an awful thing it would prove at last to have provided for everything except the one thing needful, to have provided for the body, but to have neglected the soul, to die, in fact, like Cardinal Beaufort, and give no sign of being saved. Once more I press my question on your conscience. What will you do when you are ill? 2. In the next place, I offer counsel to all who feel they need it and are willing to take it, to all who feel they are not yet prepared to meet God. That counsel is short and simple. Acquaint yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ without delay. Repent, be converted, flee to Christ, and be saved. Either you have a soul or you have not. You will surely never deny that you have. Then, if you have a soul, seek that soul's salvation. Of all gambling in the world, there is none so reckless as that of the man who lives unprepared to meet God and yet puts off repentance. Either you have sins or you have none. If you have an 
who will dare to deny it? Break off from those sins. Cast away your transgressions and turn away from them without delay. Either you need a Savior or you do not. If you do, flee to the only Savior this very day and cry mightily to Him to save your soul. Apply to Christ at once. Seek Him by faith. Commit your soul into His keeping. Cry mightily to Him for pardon and peace with God. Ask Him to pour down the Holy Spirit upon you and make you a thorough Christian. He will hear you. No matter what you have been, He will not refuse your prayer. He has said, Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. John 6.37 Beware, I beseech you, of a vague and indefinite Christianity. Be not content with the general hope that all is right because you belong to the old Church of England and that all will be well at last because God is merciful. Rest not. Rest not without personal union with Christ himself. Rest not, rest not till you have the witness of the Spirit in your heart that you are washed and sanctified and justified and one with Christ and Christ in you. Rest not till you can say with the Apostle, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. 2 Timothy 1, verse 12. Vague and indefinite and indistinct religion may do very well in time of health. It will never do in the day of sickness. A mere formal, perfunctory church membership may carry a man through the sunshine of youth and prosperity. It will break down entirely when death is in sight. Nothing will do then but real hard union with Christ. Christ interceding for us at God's right hand. Christ known and believed as our priest, our physician, our friend. Christ alone can rob death of its sting and enable us to face sickness without fear. He alone can deliver those who, through fear of death, are in bondage. I say to everyone who wants advice, be acquainted with Christ. As ever you would have hope and comfort on the bed of sickness, be acquainted with Christ. Seek Christ. Apply to Christ. Take every care and trouble to Him when you are acquainted with Him. He will keep you and carry you through all. Pour out your heart before Him when your conscience is burdened. He is the true confessor. He alone can absolve you and take the burden away. Turn to him first in the day of sickness like Martha and Mary. Keep on looking to him to the last breath of your life. Christ is worth knowing. The more you know him, the better you will love him. Then be acquainted with Jesus Christ. 3. In the third place, I exhort all true Christians who read this paper 
to remember how much they may glorify God in the time of sickness and to lie quiet in God's hand when they are ill. I feel it very important to touch on this point. I know how ready the heart of a believer is to faint and how busy Satan is in suggesting doubts and questionings when the body of a Christian is weak. I have seen something of the depression and melancholy which sometimes comes upon the children of God when they are suddenly laid aside by disease and obliged to sit still. I have marked how prone some good people are to torment themselves with morbid thoughts at such seasons and say in their hearts, God has forsaken me. I am cast out of his sight. I earnestly entreat all sick believers to remember that they may honor God as much by patient suffering as they can by active work. It often shows more grace to sit still than it does to go to and fro and perform great exploits. I entreat them to remember that Christ cares for them as much when they are sick as he does when they are well, and that the very chastisement they feel so acutely is sent in love and not in anger. Above all, I entreat them to recollect the sympathy of Jesus for all his weak members. They are always tenderly cared for by him, but never so much as in their time of need. Christ has had great experience of sickness. He knows the heart of a sick man. He used to see all manner of sickness and all manner of disease when he was upon earth. He felt specially for this sick in the days of his flesh. He feels for them specially still. Sickness and suffering, I often think, make believers more like their Lord in experience than health. Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Isaiah 53.3, Matthew 8.17 The Lord Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. None have such an opportunity of learning the mind of a suffering Savior as suffering disciples. Fourth, I conclude with a word of exhortation to all believers, which I heartily pray God to impress upon their souls. I exhort you to keep up a habit of close communion with Christ and never to be afraid of going too far in your religion. Remember this if you wish to have great peace in your times of sickness. I observe with regret a tendency in some quarters to lower the standard of practical Christianity and to denounce what are called extreme views about a Christian's daily walk in life. I remark with pain that even religious people will sometimes look coldly on those who withdraw from worldly society and will censure them as exclusive, narrow-minded illiberal, uncharitable, sour-spirited, and the like. I warn every believer in Christ who reads this paper to beware of being influenced by such censures. I entreat him, if he wants light in the valley of death, 
to keep himself unspotted from the world, to follow the Lord very fully and to walk very closely with God. James 1, 27 and Numbers 14, verse 24. I believe that the want of thoroughness about many people's Christianity is one secret of their little comfort both in health and sickness. I believe that the half and half keep in with everybody religion which satisfies many in the present day is offensive to God and sows thorns in dying pillows which hundreds never discover till too late. I believe that the weakness and feebleness of such a religion never comes out so much as it does upon a sickbed. If you and I want strong consolation in our time of need, we must not be content with a bare union with Christ. Hebrews 6.18 We must seek to know something of heartfelt, experimental communion with Him. Never, never let us forget that union is one thing and communion another. Thousands, I fear, who know what union with Christ is know nothing of communion. The day may come when after a long fight with disease we shall feel that medicine can do no more and that nothing remains but to die. Friends will be standing by unable to help us. Hearing, eyesight, even the power of praying will be fast failing us. The world and its shadows will be melting beneath our feet. Eternity, with its realities, will be looming large before our minds. What shall support us in that trying hour? What shall enable us to feel, I fear no evil? Psalm 23, verse 4. Nothing, nothing can do it but close communion with Christ. Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith. Christ putting his right arm under our heads. Christ felt to be sitting by our side. Christ can alone give us the complete victory in the last struggle. Let us cleave to Christ more closely, love him more heartily, live to him more thoroughly, copy him more exactly, confess him more boldly, follow him more fully. Religion like this will always bring its own reward. Worldly people may laugh at it. Weak brethren may think it extreme, but it will wear well. At even time, it will bring us light. In sickness, it will bring us peace. In the world to come, it will give us a crown of glory that fadeth not away. The time is short. The fashion of this world passeth away. A few more sicknesses, and all will be over. A few more funerals, and our own funeral will take place. A few more storms and tossings, and we shall be safe in harbor. We travel towards a world where there is no more sickness, where parting and pain and crying and mourning are done with forevermore. Heaven is becoming every year more full and earth more empty. The friends ahead are becoming more numerous than the friends astern. Yet a little time 
and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Hebrews 10, verse 37. In his presence shall be fullness of joy. Christ shall wipe away all tears from his people's eyes. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. But he shall be destroyed. Death himself shall one day die. Revelation 20, verse 14. In the meantime... Let us live the life of faith in the Son of God. Let us lean all our weight on Christ and rejoice in the thought that he lives forevermore. Yes, blessed be God. Christ lives, though we may die. Christ lives, though friends and families are carried to the grave. He lives who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light by the gospel. He lives who said, O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Hosea 13.14 He lives who will one day change our vile body and make it like unto his glorious body. In sickness and in health, in life and in death, let us lean confidently on him. Surely we ought to say daily with one of old, Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Chapter 16 The Family of God The whole family in heaven and earth. Ephesians 3, verse 15 The words which form the title of this paper or to stir some feelings in our minds at any time. There lives not the man or woman on earth who is not member of some family. The poorest, as well as the richest, has his kith and kin, and can tell you something of his family. Family gatherings at certain times of the year, such as Christmas, we all know are very common. Thousands of firesides are crowded then, if at no other time of the year. The young man in town snatches a few days from business and takes a run down to the old folks at home. The young woman in service gets a short holiday and comes to visit her father and mother. Brothers and sisters meet for a few hours. Parents and children look one another in the face. How much there is to talk about, how many questions to be asked, how many interesting things to be told. Happy indeed is that fireside which sees gathered round it at Christmas the whole family. Family gatherings are natural and right and good. I approve them with all my heart. It does me good to see them kept up. They are one of the very few pleasant things which have survived the fall of man. Next to the grace of God, I see no principle which unites people so much in this sinful world as family feeling. Community of blood is a most powerful tie. It was a fine saying of an American naval officer when his men insisted on helping the English sailors in fighting the Taco forts in China. I cannot help it. Blood is thicker than water. 
I have often observed that people will stand up for their relations merely because they are their relations and refuse to hear a word against them even when they have no sympathy with their tastes and ways. Anything which helps to keep up family feeling ought to be commended. It is a wise thing when it can be done to gather together at Christmas the whole family. Family gatherings, nevertheless, are often sorrowful things. It would be strange indeed in such a world as this if they were not. Few are the family circles which do not show gaps and vacant places as years pass away. Changes and deaths make sad havoc as time goes on. Thoughts will rise up within us as we grow older about faces and voices no longer with us, which no Christmas merriment can entirely keep down. When the young members of the family have once begun to launch forth into the world, the old heads may long survive the scattering of the nest, but after a certain time it seldom happens that you see together the whole family. There is one great family to which I want all the readers of this paper to belong. It is a family despised by many and not even known by some, but it is a family of far more importance than any family on earth. To belong to it entitles a man to far greater privileges than to be the son of a king. It is the family of which St. Paul speaks to the Ephesians when he tells them of the whole family in heaven and earth. It is the family of God. I ask the attention of every reader of this paper while I try to describe this family and recommend it to his notice. I want to tell you of the amazing benefits which membership of this family conveys. I want you to be found one of this family when its gathering shall come at last, a gathering without separation or sorrow or tears. Hear me while, as a minister of Christ and friend to your soul, I speak to you for a few minutes about the whole family in heaven and earth. One, first of all, what is this family? Two, secondly, what is its present position? Three, thirdly, what are its future prospects? I wish to unfold these three things before you, and I invite your serious consideration of them. Our family gatherings on earth must have an end one day. Our last earthly Christmas must come. Happy indeed is that Christmas which finds us prepared to meet God. 1. What is that family which the Bible calls the whole family in heaven and earth? Of whom does it consist? The family before us consists of all real Christians, of all who have the Spirit of all true believers in Christ, of the saints of every age and church and nation and tongue. It includes the blessed company of all faithful people. It is the same as the election of God, the household of faith, the mystical body of Christ, the bride, the living temple, 
the sheep that never perish, the church of the firstborn, the holy Catholic church. All these expressions are only the family of God under other names. Membership of the family before us does not depend on any earthly connection. It comes not by natural birth, but by new birth. Ministers cannot impart it to their hearers. Parents cannot give it to their children. You may be born in the godliest family in the land and enjoy the richest means of grace a church can supply and yet never belong to the family of God. To belong to it, you must be born again. None but the Holy Ghost can make a living member of His family. It is His special office and prerogative to bring into the true church such as shall be saved. They that are born again are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 1, verse 13. Do you ask the reason of this name which the Bible gives to the company of all true Christians? Would you like to know why they are called a family? Listen, and I will tell you. A. True Christians are called a family because they have all one Father. They are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. They are all born of one Spirit. They are all sons and daughters of the Lord Almighty. They have received the spirit of adoption, whereby they cry, Abba, Father. Galatians 3.26, John 3.8, 2 Corinthians 6.18, and Romans 8.15. They do not regard God with slavish fear as an austere being, only ready to punish them. They look up to Him with tender confidence as a reconciled and loving parent, as one forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin to all who believe on Jesus, and full of pity even to the least and feeblest. The words, Our Father which art in heaven, are no mere form in the mouth of true Christians. No wonder they are called God's family. Be True Christians are called a family because they all rejoice in one name. That name is the name of their great head and elder brother, even Jesus Christ the Lord. Just as a common family name is the uniting link to all the members of a highland clan, so does the name of Jesus tie all believers together in one vast family. As members of outward visible churches, they have various names and distinguishing appellations. As living members of Christ, they all, with one heart and mind, rejoice in one Savior. Not a heart among them, but feels drawn to Jesus as the only object of hope. Not a tongue among them, but would tell you that Christ is all. Sweet to them all is the thought of Christ's death for them on the cross. Sweet is the thought of Christ's intercession for them at the right hand of God. Sweet is the thought of Christ's coming again to unite them to himself in one glorified company forever. In fact, you might as well 
Take away the sun out of heaven as take away the name of Christ from believers. To the world there may seem little in his name. To believers it is full of comfort, hope, joy, rest, and peace. No wonder they are called a family. See, true Christians above all are called a family because there is so strong a family likeness among them. They are all led by one spirit and are marked by the same general features of life, heart, taste, and character. Just as there is a general bodily resemblance among the brothers and sisters of a family, so there is a general spiritual resemblance among all the sons and daughters of the Lord Almighty. They all hate sin and love God. They all rest their hope of salvation on Christ and have no confidence in themselves. They all endeavor to come out and be separate from the ways of the world and to set their affections on things above. They all turn naturally to the same Bible as the only food of their souls and the only sure guide in their pilgrimage toward heaven. They find it a lamp to their feet and a light to their path. Psalm 119, verse 105. They all go to the same throne of grace in prayer and find it as needful to speak to God as to breathe. They all live by the same rule, the word of God, and strive to conform their daily life to its precepts. They have all the same inward experience. Repentance, faith, hope, charity, humility, inward conflict are things with which they are all more or less acquainted. No wonder they are called a family. This family likeness among true believers is a thing that deserves special attention. To my own mind, it is one of the strongest indirect evidences of the truth of Christianity. It is one of the greatest proofs of the reality of the work of the Holy Ghost. Some true Christians live in civilized countries and some in the midst of heathen lands. Some are highly educated and some are unable to read a letter. Some are rich and some are poor. Some are churchmen and some are dissenters. Some are old and some are young. And yet, notwithstanding all this, there is a marvelous oneness of heart and character among them. Their joys and their sorrows, their love and their hatred, their likes and their dislikes, their tastes and their distastes, their hopes and their fears are all most curiously alike. Let others think what they please, I see in all this the finger of God. His handiwork is always one and the same. No wonder that two Christians are compared to a family. Take a converted Englishman and a converted Hindu and let them suddenly meet for the first time. I will engage if they can understand one another's language. They will soon find common ground between them and feel at home. The one may have been brought up at Eton and Oxford, and enjoyed every privilege of English civilization. The other 
may have been trained in the midst of gross heathenism and accustomed to habits, ways, and manners, as unlike the Englishman's, as darkness compared to light. And yet, now in half an hour, they feel that they are friends. The Englishman finds that he has more in common with his Hindu brother than he has with many an old college companion or schoolfellow. Who can account for this? How can it be explained? Nothing can account for it but the unity of the Spirit's teaching. It is one touch of grace, not nature, that makes the whole world kin. God's people are in the highest sense a family. This is the family to which I wish to direct the attention of my readers in this paper. This is the family to which I want you to belong. I ask you this day to consider it well if you never considered it before. I have shown you the father of the family, the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I have shown you the head and elder brother of the family, the Lord Jesus himself. I have shown you the features and characteristics of the family, its members, have all great marks of resemblance. Once more, I say, consider it well. Outside this family, remember, there is no salvation. None but those who belong to it, according to the Bible, are in the way that leads to heaven. The salvation of our souls does not depend on union with one church or separation from another. They are miserably deceived who think that it does and will find it out to their cost one day, except they awake. No, the life of our souls depends on something far more important. This is life eternal, to be a member of the whole family in heaven and earth. 2. I will now pass on to the second thing which I promised to consider. What is the present position of the whole family in heaven and earth? The family to which I am directing the attention of my readers this day is divided into two great parts. Each part has its own residence or dwelling place. Part of the family is in heaven and part is on earth. For the present, the two parts are entirely separated from one another but they form one body in the sight of God, though resident in two places, and their union is sure to take place one day. Two places, be it remembered, and two only, contain the family of God. The Bible tells us of no third habitation. There is no such thing as purgatory, whatever some Christians may think fit to say. There is no house of purifying training or probation for those who are not true Christians when they die? Oh, no. There are but two parts of the family, the part that is seen and the part that is unseen, the part that is in heaven and the part that is on earth. The members of the family that are not in heaven are on earth, and those that are not on earth are in heaven. Two parts and two only. Two places and two earthmen. Let this never be forgotten. Some of God's family are safe in heaven, 
they are at rest in that place which the Lord Jesus expressly calls paradise. Luke 23:43. They have finished their course. They have fought their battle. They have done their appointed work. They have learned their lessons. They have carried their cross. They have passed through the waves of this troublesome world and reached the harbor. Little as we know about them, we know that they are happy. They are no longer troubled by sin and temptation. They have said goodbye forever to poverty and anxiety, to pain and sickness, to sorrow and tears. They are with Christ himself who loved them and gave himself for them, and in his company they must needs be happy. Philippians 1 verse 23 They have nothing to fear in looking back to the past. They have nothing to dread in looking forward to things to come. Three things only are lacking to make their happiness complete. These three are the second advent of Christ in glory, the resurrection of their own bodies, and the gathering together of all believers. And of these three things they are sure. Some of God's family are still upon earth. They are scattered to and fro in the midst of a wicked world, a few in one place and a few in another. All are more or less occupied in the same way, according to the measure of their grace. All are running a race, doing a work, warring a warfare, carrying a cross, striving against sin, resisting the devil, crucifying the flesh, struggling against the world, witnessing for Christ, mourning over their own hearts, hearing, reading, and praying, however feebly, for the life of their souls. Each is often disposed to think no cross so heavy as his own, no work so difficult, no heart so hard, but each and all hold on their way. A wonder to the ignorant world around them, and often a wonder to themselves. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, 
from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.